Welcome to Broadcasting Common Ground, the Deep Foundation Institute's podcast channel. In this series, DFI's Rumble, we will be speaking with opposing industry representatives, asking hard questions and facilitating a polite argument. In this episode, Peter Faust and Laurie Simpson face off to find out who is responsible for ensuring a safe working platform. Sponsored by ECA. Welcome to DFI's podcast, Broadcasting Common Ground. I'm Lucky Nagarajan and welcome to Rumble, where we ask two guests to enter the arena and go toe-to-toe on topics relevant to our industry. And there is a referee that facilitates the discussion. For today's episode, our referee is going to be Chris Woods, who is going to be facilitating the discussion between Peter Faust, a good friend of mine, Vice President for Business Development for Malcolm Drilling, and Laurie Simpson, Managing Principal for Langan in Oakland, California, and also my industry BFF. Yes, we coined this term a few years ago. Chris, can you give us a hint of what is in store for us? Absolutely. Thank you very much, Lucky. Uh, in this episode of Rumble, we're going to hear from two folks on what we're considering opposite ends of the spectrum as it relates to a very important topic, uh, working platforms for foundation construction. And we're going to get their thoughts as to who they think bears responsibility for them being you know, built properly. Uh, here's our ticket for today. right? So in the contractor corner, as Lucky mentioned, we have Peter Faust. Peter is vice president of business development for Malcolm, based out of their corporate headquarters in San Francisco. He's exceptionally well known in the industry for his efforts for developing working platform standards, specifically here in the United States, and, and we'll be providing his always unfiltered opinions from a perspective of a foundation contractor. In the consultant corner, we have the very well known Ms. Lori Simpson. Uh, as Lucky also mentioned, Lori's the managing principal for Langen in Oakland, California. Her background as a geotechnical consultant in the Bay Area is, you know, without words, very, she's very widely known and, and highly respected. Her most recent high profile project, it was the successful completion of the Chase Center that many are familiar with, uh, the home of the reigning NBA champion Golden State Warriors. So Lori's going to be providing some input from the perspective of the consultant as it relates to working platform design and construction. So we're exceptionally grateful to both of you for joining us today, two exceptional experts in the field willing to join us uh, on our Rumble podcast here. Thank you, Chris. That's awesome that we have Peter and Lori. You know, a few months ago, I think I met Lori and Peter for dinner in California, and we started talking about uh, random things. And one of the topics was working platform. And I saw how both of them went toe-to-toe at the dinner table, talking about their differences and their, uh, you know, not so much of differences. So I think this will be really cool. So feel free to spill some blood. We will see how much blood can be spilled. Uh, You know, thank you so much for being here. So let's rumble. (laughs) Right. Well, good luck to you guys. Thank Thank you. you All right. Round one. We're going to start out by talking about some of the issues. So again, Peter and Lori, welcome. In this first round, let's talk about the issues with respect to working platforms. Working platforms really are a deal, a very big deal, 
that are oftentimes overlooked in the construction process. Many times as well, the consequences of a poor platform construction can vary anywhere from you know, poor production, breakdowns to equipment, but there's also, and it, it's unfortunately too often, consequences that lead to the overturning of a very heavy piece of foundation equipment that could lead to significant injuries, significant damage, or even death. So let's set the stage here by talking about the amount of cooks that are in the kitchen when it comes to working platform design and construction. We have the geotechnical engineer. We have the general contractor. We have the earthwork subcontractor who's likely the one that's actually responsible for building the platform. We have the specialty subcontractor who has to work from the platform. We shouldn't forget about the designer if that potentially is a different person than one of the four entities that we've already mentioned here. Finally, not to be overlooked would be the special inspector or the testing agency that may have a role in testing and verifying the conditions of the pad. So Peter, let's get started with you here. Uh, is it hard to understand why there's some difficulty here in how the responsibility and assignment of risk is decided and separately how we're you know, struggling to maybe gain, gain traction with a standardized approach to working platforms given the lineup of, of people that I just laid out here? Uh, to be quite frank, for me, it's not really hard. I think we all are responsible, each entity has his part. Each entity needs to be aware on what it means to have a safe working platform. And I think we are maybe still here in the industry in this awareness phase that not all parties uh, realize at the same time what it means, how difficult it is. And it certainly varies from job to job. Yeah? When we install small diameter tie bags with a relatively light machine, the level of risk is something totally different when we approach large diameter order cast piles with a huge machine, which puts a lot of track pressure onto the ground there. Yeah? But mm -hmm. overall, OSHA defines the responsibility as within the controlling entity. That's the word they use. And, and commonly we understand the controlling entity on, on most jobs is the general contractor. So if you wanna spin the wheel back, he is the one who is responsible, ultimately. But I feel we are all responsible. We're waking up in the industry. We're learning from each other. And it's not only the GC, we can play everything back and, and making the right assumptions and the right moves. Yeah? And, and certainly, if you talk about risk, we, as the specialist foundation contractor, I believe we are at most risk. And this is, I believe, duly to us running the largest equipment on site, running it in a condition where we need a stable work platform, running it in different weather conditions, yeah, wintertime, summertime, throughout rain. Mm -hmm. Nobody else has uh, the toys we use. I believe very rarely you have uh, false work erection or you have uh, a precast elements which are heavier and require a bigger crane, a bigger lift. But we are the ones who are at highest risk that something happens to our people, our equipment. And I think we, in our industry, we have to drive this boat. We have to push the issue forward. 
because it's our most interest and and uh, when you go into the third question the third part of your question uh standardized approach yes that's definitely missing here in the us in the industry yes we've seen something like this in other parts of the world the uk started 10 15 years uh, looking into these issues after they had a lot of uh, rigged machines falling down a lot of issues a lot of damage the canada followed we have uh, an approach in the meantime in australia and new zealand and we definitely need one here in the us and i truly believe we on the foundation industry we are the ones who need to drive this boat hmm. uh, that's a that's a good perspective especially when it comes to the the risk as, aspect of things i mean you know a, a former colleague of mine and and, and Lori's, frankly george kelly uh, used to always refer to having to leave your your pile of gold right if, if if something goes wrong on a job everyone's invited into the litigation room whether you're part of it or not and the only way to get out of the litigation room is to leave your pile of gold on the table right so i i think that's something that's overlooked in general uh, quite a bit that everyone has a part in it and how do we move that forward uh Lori, what what are your thoughts yeah thanks chris um so, I mean, I agree, this is a very important topic and something that leads to uh, confusion and just lack of understanding. Um, and I think when, you know, we refer to the controlling entity, I don't disagree that that usually points at the general contractor. Um, and I think that unfortunately the general contractor isn't in this conversation and I don't mean literally, but you know, they're, they're not, um, you know, as educated about this. And I know that when it gets brought up, um, they don't think it's their responsibility in so many cases. And they'll point to us as the geotech, or they'll point to, you know, the specialty contractors who are using the site. Um, but I think that controlling entity term is pretty important. Sometimes it gets pointed at the owner but honestly, I don't think the owner really controls the day-to-day -day activity of the site. So I think it, it needs to be a conversation early on between all the parties involved and really discussed and you know, decided who's taking responsibility for this. And really importantly, that someone is taking responsibility for this appropriately. Now that's it's certainly a thoughtful way of, of looking at it. And you mentioned an interesting point to that is, is whether or not, where, where's the owner's responsibility here, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, you come from the consultant side of things, my former life, you know, I, I was working on the same side of the fence. And we're often faced as consultants with trying to deal with a sort of low bid approach, you know, cut costs, you know, the, the owners don't want to spend a lot of money necessarily up front on, on geotech work. Um, all the time. So, you know, reports that you prepare as a consultant are generally provided to the various contractors on a job, the specialty subs, the GC, whether it's earthwork recommendations, foundation specific recommendations. Along those lines, when it comes to the owner, how often are you ever actually asked to include a scope of work that might specifically address this issue in your reports? Yeah, that never comes up. Um, that never comes up as a, a scope of work when the owner engages us to perform a geotechnical investigation for, for a project. Um, I think that, you know, it doesn't really come up until 
you know, we're going to construction and the specialty contractor starts asking about, you know, what kind of surface are you going to prepare for us? And, you know, they're looking at the room, right? They're looking at who in the room is, is going to do this for us. Right. Um, you know, in our reports, we will point out, you know, it is it's likely we'll point out what, you know, soil conditions are, perhaps like once you excavate down, you're in a particularly poor condition, or maybe even at the ground surface, if you don't have a excavation, um, maybe in wet weather, we might point to some constructability issues, and we'll identify the need for a, a safe, you know, working surface, but it's not something that we provide recommendations for specifically. Peter, you know, you would, I guess, be maybe what we would consider being on the consumer end of these reports, right? You're, you're provided these as part of the bid documents. Um, you know, do you feel like when, for the majority of the time, and I realize I'm painting with a fairly broad brush right now, right? But how often do you feel like you have sufficient information if for, you know, we're talking about an example here where maybe Malcolm would be involved in designing your own working platform or providing parameters. Do you feel like you generally have the information in a standard geotech report that you need? Uh, or if you're not gonna be doing it, at least to, to pass it along to a third party to design, you know, perform some sort of design for you, do you feel that that's generally sufficient data there? Unfortunately not, I have to say. And, and I read a lot of geotech reports from, from various regions, various companies for various scopes of work. And yes, there are recommendations for earthwork, there are recommendations for piles, there are recommendations for shallow foundations, everything is covered, very little. Uh, we find recommendations for work platforms, unfortunately. And, and I understand uh, that at the time a geotech gets involved, a lot of unknowns are still there. You know, if, if the geotech is lucky, he knows what building has been constructed, what elevation, Maybe the grade right. has to be for construction, but means and methods are not known. Um, but still, I feel there is room for improvement. Yeah, when a geotech makes a recommendation for a foundation element, yeah, be it an overcast pile, be it a drill shaft, be it a driven pile, he has something in mind what what supports the structure and what works with the soil. He's experienced enough to also know and realize what it might take to install such an element. And based on this, uh, and there's a broad variety of, of means and methods to get them installed, don't get me wrong. Yeah, mm -hmm. I don't expect the geotech to know exactly what the contractor will propose. But based on this, I think uh, there's room to also include recommendations uh, for a safe platform. and and maybe not necessary for every job yeah in some regions they have such stable ground they don't really care but and laurie brought it up or you brought it up earlier the the famous warrior stadium is i think a prime example of a very early uh, identification of of what problems are in the ground when you want to construct the stadium 20 30 feet below grade right into the very soft clay layer you can imagine uh, which we deal here in the Bay Area, what does it mean for the construction? And almost regardless of what size equipment is used, what crane is used, when it's gonna be used, we're sitting on the softest material on, on planet Earth and we wanna put heavy equipment on it. What does that mean safety-wise? What does it mean cost-wise also for the owner? 
yeah, an early recommendation in the geotech report to the owner, to the client of the geotech, telling, look, watch out, there's difficulty coming. You might have to do more than, than throw a little gravel on the ground and make it safe uh, for the people you are employing to build your structure. That's certainly, I think, a good avenue, and that's something I think we all should get to and, and help ourselves be safe, help the owner to, to capture these costs and avoid arguing and, and discussions down the road who's actually responsible or who missed it. So let's stick with this then for a second, right? Because I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying in terms of recommendations in a report. We've also talked about maybe the need for a specific design based on a certain piece of equipment. You gave the example about uh, a rig for for soil nail wall. Maybe it's 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 not nearly as heavily loaded as a uh, you know big piece of foundation or drilling equipment, right? If I'm hearing you right, it sounds like you're saying we need to have these recommendations in the in the geotech report. But as you also said, the geotech likely is not going to be in possession of specifics as it relates to the equipment that is going to be used later on that right because you know i mean we, we know geotech reports could be done three years before a project breaks ground right so i, I guess the question to, to to both you guys that we'll ask here to, to, to wrap up round one would be you have recommendations in a geotech report that could be general but you also may have a situation where you need a specific design for that platform so we're talking about the actual design sign and seal um you know the outside perspective could say the geotech should do that based on the fact that they're drilling uh the the you know the guy with the equipment could be the, the one to do it the owner right we've talked about this a little bit so far the owner could be the one you know some people can make the argument that the owner's responsibility for safety on his own site so if it comes down to a matter of signing and sealing a document for the design of a specific working platform, I mean, who do you think, and I will, Peter, I'll go to you first. I mean, who do you think is legally responsible for that activity? I would very clearly and straight out uh, call this a temporary works designer. Mm -hmm. I consider a platform a temporary work. It's just the same as any shoring, any temporary shoring. Correct. Yep. Trestle. We all understand when we sit over water on a trestle, this is a structure which needs to be designed and stamped. Uh, any false work to, to erect a bridge over railroad or anything else needs to be designed and stamped. And I think a, a working platform falls under a temporary works designer's responsibility, whoever that might be at the end of the day. Yeah. I am. So that could be, so, so you're saying that could be internal to the contractor or potentially a third party design? Like, like we do uh, with, with shoring design, sometimes right. handled by an external designer working for the owner, sometimes handled for the general contractor, sometimes it's the specialty foundation contractor who has the ability and proposes uh, a shoring design, stamps it, gets it approved and, and goes to work and is safe. And, and uh, I'm saying there's also because this temporary works designer needs the correct input from all parties. It needs right. to start with, with getting what I call the resistance values out of the geotech report or the geotech engineer. Yeah? Needs the site conditions from a general contractor. What are we building, when and how? And also needs the input from the specialty subcontractor about the loads. 
the machine puts out a certain load onto this platform. Who knows about this? Is it the equipment manufacturer? Yes, he needs to give input to the general, to the to the subcontractor, who is the one who knows how to operate this machine. Right. Only him. So all together needs to needs to come together. All three, four parties need to come together and, and give input to this temporary works designer, who I believe should be the responsible party party at the end of the day. Fair enough. Hey, I, so gotta, I gotta step in here. I gotta step in here. So here I heard you say two totally different things. So I agree with this last part you said, which is a temporary works designer, and they get all the information about the very specific loads and the conditions, and they're the one who design it. But before you said that the geotech report should have recommendations in there, and you indicated that the geotechnical engineer should understand what equipment is being used, so they should be able to provide recommendations for a working platform. But I absolutely disagree there. I think that you know, we can have an idea of what the, the, the you know, equipment would be, maybe a little bit about the loads, but, you know, every machine seems to have its own set of load conditions. And depending on the pick and how far the pick is away, that's going to change your load conditions. Um, and also, I mean, we could be conservative. Yes, geotechnical engineers often accused of being conservative for our own liability reasons. But, you know, if we do that, no one's going to want to build, you know, the working platform that we design if we go on a conservative route where it accommodates, you know, any imaginable load. So I don't think it's it's going to be in our reports to do that. Also, as you said, it's a temporary works. And so it really might not fall under our responsibility as the consultant to the owner. Um, it should you know, be an outside, you know, separate entity, which could be engaged by the GC or could be engaged by you, depending on how that goes. Um, but I really don't think that the geotechnical report should be providing these recommendations. We can be pointing to the adverse conditions, we can be providing the soil conditions, strength, whatnot, that will be encountered. But beyond that, that's not going to be in the geotech report. And I don't think it's our response responsibility to do so. I believe we can include a little more as an industry. Um, some countries have put out um, a framework of this is a scope. We are installing piles from this and this size using that and that equipment type, size, and, and weight, and therefore we have a range of this and this on, on track pressure. We assume out of uh, the knowledge we have gained, uh, calculations we have performed, that a certain scope of work uh, is handled with a certain equipment size and therefore uh, produces a certain track pressure. And they put this in legislation. They have a table where everybody can pick and choose uh, on, on what needs to be installed, what foundation element will require, what stable platform. And I think this is a relatively easy way, even it doesn't define exactly uh, what, what ground bearing pressure we, we finally might need, but this is a good starting point uh, for a consultant to highlight to the owner, and I'd use the Warrior Stadium again, to highlight to the owner, look, here you need to go above and beyond placing two layers of 18 inch uh, compacted gravel and maybe a geocrit in between. Here you have to do more. 
Yeah, you have to envision that you have to stabilize the ground in, in five layers, six layers, whatever it is, only because the conditions are so bad because you want to install this on this element. And we believe that requires such and such a machine which will produce this and this pressure. So I think as this information becomes more and more available and people are more aware, we're helping ourselves A, to be safer. We're helping the owner to, to capture these costs and we're helping us not fighting at the end of the day over what's really needed, yeah? Yeah, I think that Chase Center is a great example um, of a forward-thinking general contractor. Um, they were pondering this question really from the very beginning um, and really, um, you know, working to solve it before they got there. And so, so that was a great example. And that's where I do think the general contractors need to be brought into this conversation. I think it's really important um, that they understand their responsibility and forward-looking um, view will really be helpful. Excellent. Well, guys, this has been a great first round. So I think we're going to take a few minutes, a short break here, and we'll be back for round two. All right, everyone, we're, we're back for round two. So round one, we spent really kind of focusing on what some of the issues are that exists when, you know, with what comes with platform design. So we're going to shift gears now in round two, and we're going to talk about how we actually go about fixing some of these issues, right? So Peter touched on it earlier in round one that, you know, there are some countries where some traction has been made toward a working platform standard that may serve as a guideline within the industry. And, you know, the places where the most significant progress has been made is where there's actually some form of ramifications to not following through with the guide, right? Because guidelines are only as good as they are if they're enforceable, right? I mean, if, the, you know, we got posted speed limit signs all over the place, but if you weren't worried about getting pulled over, who's gonna pay attention to those, right? I mean, it is important to note though, probably in, in some of these countries, there could be pretty significant differences to the procurement selection processes, right? And some, some different laws, maybe when it comes to governing construction risk. So Peter, you obviously have, you know, been very at the forefront of the charge here, trying to help lead and develop um, these guidelines as it may translate to the US, helping develop the, uh, the EFFC DFI guide to working platforms. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this effort and how that specific committee within DFI is actually working to get this document into everyday practice? I gladly take this opportunity and uh, do a little promotion uh, for this effort. Um, I was just looking it up. We started 2019. We put the first guide out with our, our European counterparts. And it was more uh, an awareness raising effort that we wanted to highlight this topic to the industry. We wanted to show where we are. We collected, I don't know, 150, 180 pages of attachment showing the different regulations around the world in different languages uh, on different levels. And then we started digging in, realizing there is information out. It varies uh, in, in, in terms of, of quality, but also in, in what direction uh, <clears throat> different countries develop uh, their efforts. And uh, where a lot of differences. So 
this was for us a starting point where we formed the working group and then we went into some details asking more or less everybody involved what's most important for you at this moment and can you rate these and um, surprisingly the rating revealed that uh, a lot of people here in the US at least uh, were asking hmm since we're so far behind, mostly we contractors show up to the job site when everything is done or everybody believes everything is done and we were handed or we are handed a platform which we were promised uh, it's good enough for our work and 95% compaction has been achieved. So go to work and, and be happy. And, and we very often don't really know if that's the case when it was placed. Uh, is it in dry condition? Is it consistently... 24 inch thick everywhere. And, and we have the risk of, of evaluating this within a day or two before we mobilize heavy equipment. So we were wondering, is there any uh, easy, simple tool we can use to verify uh, what was placed there by a third party or a fourth party and before we come out and, and mobilize our equipment? So this was the most pressing issue for the group, uh, followed by a very surprising uh, question about actual uh, track pressure of our equipment. Uh, we noticed very early on that the information we get by uh, in the manuals from our equipment suppliers varies hugely and, and varies throughout time, varies in, in the way it is, is, is described or given to us and, and uh, brought up a lot of questions. And, and as we worked in this group, we realized uh, in the UK, uh, this came up uh, already 10, 15 years ago, and they created actually an Excel spreadsheet calculator where everybody could put in his, his custom-made machine, be it an old one, be it a new one, and, and run these numbers uh, for themselves, uh, which sounded like quite a bit of challenge upfront, but uh, ultimately is not so difficult, but just gives us another tool to actually verify what pressure do we generate when we perform certain works. And people learned, oh, yeah, of course, when I drill an auger in the ground, that's different than when I pull an auger out of the ground. And, and what is the resulting force? And what is the governed load case? And, and people uh, were aware how difficult that actually is and, and, and said, hey, we need better input. We need more clear uh, guidelines from our equipment manufacturers about the work we do and what pressure are can generate. And the third bullet point, very much to our surprise, after we actually send out what I call a challenge um, to, I think I, I invited 20, 25 uh, designers, consultants, engineers in the industry say, hey, here's a life example. Can you tell me uh, what capacity this platform has? And it's a life example we actually performed work on. And uh, we were very surprised uh, about uh, the spread of, of results coming back. So we had a hundred percent different feedback uh, from, from people who were open and honest enough, 13 of them responded to give us their input. Yeah, And this told us, whoa, there is not only uncertainty in, on what input parameter you may use, even they got all the same geotech report, but there's uncertainty also what design model uh, to use. And mm -hmm. doing this, we realized, looking a little bit outside the US, realized, oh, other countries uh, have done these comparisons and actually spent some time and effort and money to figure out exactly the same that from the 10 available geotechnical design models, who, by the way, all uh, assume a rigid foundation, which uh, a track of a machine is not, 
uh, found out that, yeah, there is a spread and it's not necessarily a conservative uh, spread. Yeah, there are load cases where we might be unsafe when we don't figure out what a proper design model to use. So we we rated these three topics uh, and said, these are three interesting topics we want to tackle. We started with the first one that uh, is leading right now into what I call a field research study number one, where we have embarked into uh, field tests. Uh, we have four instruments selected, which we believe will be useful. We purchase them through DFI and we'll make them available to anybody who's interested to try them, be it a contractor, be it a consultant, be it a GC, whoever wants it uh, can, can get them, can use them, can try them out, can learn from it and give us a little feedback, uh, not so much about the numbers, the values, the comparisons eventually, but more or less give us feedback how valuable they are for you. Is this a good instrument? Would you use this again? Uh, is this helpful? Can your field guys, and this is primarily my intention, can our field guys run these tools? Are they simple enough to take them run out before you mobilize and test the platform or test whatever you have and, and have a better right. level of, of, of insurance that this is the right way uh, and we can go to work safely Yeah, after the okay. fact? Yeah? Not, not looking into design, not looking if the calculations were done right, just assuming there's no design, there's no calculation. We don't even know yeah. what's out there. Give us something. From a more practical, from a more practical standpoint. Yes. This well, is I think right. that um, this uh, this tool and you know this um, evaluation is going to be really helpful. And I know we've talked with Peter about this, um, but I want to go back to <laughs> referencing round one and a few things that Peter just said about the challenges of figuring out what the actual track pressures are and the fact that they weren't even sure what their track pressures were and it was hard to identify and it's different depending on what activity you're doing. Um, and that just, you know, points to how, what a challenge that would be to even include something in our, in the geotechnical reports to address. And I, I think it does point to how critical it is to make it a specialty um, service you know, once more is known about the equipment that's going to be used and, and how it's going to be um, implemented on site. But I just don't think it's appropriate to, to bring it in during the early stages of, of the geotechnical investigation. Um, but you can just see how much uncertainty there is uh, in, the whole, in the whole thing and why it's critical uh, in the end. Now that's excellent point, right? It's again, right, the geotech report may be done considerable amount of time before the foundation construction is even happening. And, and a lot of geotech reports, you're even providing a bit of a, a Chinese menu, so to speak, to, to the owner in terms of various values or various foundation solutions that could be out there. So you, you may not even know what the foundation solution ultimately that's that's going to be chosen is going to be. So Lori, sticking with you for a second, I mean, you know, one of the hats you wear, and, and people are well aware of this, is you've had a lot of code-related experience in your career. So you heard what Peter just said about, you know, soliciting information from the industry, developing this document, now going through with the next phase of, of some field testing that may or may not be used from a specific design, but more to just sort of verify the conditions in the field that, that, that things are adequate. But with this sort of effort, taking some sort of guideline or document, it's obviously down the road going to be enhanced by some of this data that Peter is talking about. What's the best way to try and get something like this 
from where it's at right now into a position of an enforceable document within building code or something along those lines? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, you know, the building code, generally speaking, does not address temporary works. Um, there is, uh, you know, there are some code provisions for temporary shoring, but in general, the building code isn't there for, for temporary works. So I, I'm not sure the building code is the place to go. But when it comes to, you know, some other avenue, um, you know, I would really look to our different, you know, industry partners to kind of solve that. Um, as it is, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, some other implementation of requirements that would speak to OSHA requirements. Um, and we're finding, you know, just through some research, how hard it is to get anything into OSHA. Um, and so what are the other avenues um, to, you know, to get this, these recognized either standards or, um, you know, just even the industry practices document that's already been published. So I don't, I don't have a good answer for you, um, but I do think that, you know, continuing to bring in our industry partners with, you know, ADSC, PDCA, DFI, you know, Geo Institute, bringing everybody in to agree, this is important. I don't know who wouldn't agree. So agree it's important right. and then um, really get it out there and educate, educate the, the construction world about this. And you don't have to educate any of the specialty contractors, right? It, right. You know, it's the education to the GCs, the education to the um, owners, and then the agreement of where does, where does this lie? And you can see there's, there's different places this responsibility or at least design effort could lie. I would say that, you know, a challenge that we face when, you know, asked about this type of work and making recommendations is, you know, when, when equipment changes are made or conditions change on site, either due to weather or just due to, you know, other things out of our control, you know, who, who's responsible for that when the working platform is no longer adequate, either because it's degraded or because different equipment's been brought out that maybe provides extra pressures or different pressures than it was designed for. So, you know, there's a whole lot that can build into this and, um, you know, it's tricky to solve for sure. No, that's excellent way of looking at it. So let, let me let me shift shift gears here then for a second, right? Because we've to this point we've been talking a little bit about risk and responsibility and, and, and that sort of viewpoint. Let's shift to the actual dollars here for a second, right? So I mean you you've made it I, I think pretty clear here that that your position is that this design is a temporary works. It's it's either a third party to the specialty contract or the responsibility of the GC, something along those lines. If, uh, let me think of the right way to put this, but the, the scope, the, the design has to be based on something, right? So do you think it would be reasonable, even if you guys aren't, and when I say you guys, I'm talking the, the consultant side of things, right? Yeah. Is it reasonable to try Take and have on a, all, all consultants. <laughs> right. Well, again, right, We're, we, we paint with a broad brush on this show, right? But would it be reasonable to try and develop something where maybe a scope, not necessarily the design, but in terms of the type of information that would be needed to do this design, right? Because if 
if the geotech's out there with a CPT rig or a drill rig or something, a lot of times that information is going to be what ultimately a design like this could be could be based on. So if that needed to be expanded a bit in terms of a certain type of testing or something along those lines, would would some sort of standardization of a scope there that could become maybe more standard or more uh, re repeatable and, and being done with more frequency in geotech reports, would something like that uh, be reasonable? Would that be a reasonable place for the consultants to be? So I guess I don't see where the geotech report doesn't already provide um, the information about the soil. I mean, assuming that the exploration went uh, sufficiently deep that you have mm -hmm. data at the depth of, of interest, um, I, I guess I don't know why, why it's implied that the geotechnical report doesn't provide adequate information about the soil conditions that could be used to design the working platform. I would have a, a wish list. I would wish <laughs> there you go. read in the geotech report just something like at the current grade, assuming that will be the final working grade, uh, the soil, uh, as investigated by us, uh, is providing X amount of uh, uh, capacity. And if uh, higher capacities uh, are needed, uh, improvements such as such uh, need to be uh, envisioned. That would be something, or if the working grade is assumed to be 20 feet below grade, be aware there is a very soft layer which needs uh, some extra care and improvement, uh, which is above and beyond our scope. Uh, but something like this in an early stage, because uh, us as a contractor looking at this geotech report at bidding stage, we don't have any means and methods uh, to, to spend time or money or effort to look into this any deeper. Right. Yeah? And uh, we have to rely on this information uh, even in the large design build world, that's sometimes very tricky uh, where you have time and maybe money and resources to go in deeper. And, and this comes back to very early uh, issue you had, how much money to spend up front? You know, how do we convince our owner spending a penny more at the beginning for good investigation is worthwhile. So, so I think that, um, I mean, I think that very commonly our reports do identify you know, if we see an adverse condition at the, you know, the working depth. Um, and I think it's there and, you know, maybe, um, maybe this isn't, you know, broad enough throughout the geotechnical world and we need to do some more, more educating about it just so it's identified. But I would expect a specialty contractor to be able to look at a CPT log, um, to look at a boring log find the depth of where they'll be working and have some recognition that this is, uh, this is a poor conditions for their equipment. I, I would absolutely expect every specialty contractor can recognize a soft clay or a loose sand or you know whatever. I would agree. And, and I think we are we're learning that this might not be the case everywhere and, and may come with the, the qualification and the knowledge of, of each contractor. But I think even uh, the smaller guys are, are waking up or are now realizing, oops, uh, I need to maybe spend a little bit more time instead of just writing uh, work access as per general contractor. 
Fair enough. Well, that's that's going to wrap up round two. So uh, again, thank you guys uh, for another excellent, informative round. Uh, let's let's bring Lucky back. In. Here, Lucky. Let's bring you back in. What, what's your what's your perspective? How are how are things going so far here? You know, I think this is a very interesting conversation they are having. You know, I mean, working in uh, you know in consulting industry and uh, being on site as field engineer for a very long time and working with contractors, I see both their perspectives, you know, um, more of Lori's perspective than uh, Peter's perspective, because I haven't been in that shoes a lot, lot than uh, Lori's. So I really like how they are, um, you know, started standing their ground, you know, but I can see how they both have their perspectives on what each other uh, party can do to advance this because this is a big problem in the industry. You know, there is, yeah. uh, to tell you the truth, in the last few uh, months or maybe last few, I don't know, I, I heard about working platforms a lot in the past, but I think late, after we chose this as the podcast uh, title, you know, or the topic, like I've mm -hmm. heard this a lot, a, a lot in the conferences during networking, you know, a lot of people are talking about this. That means yeah. that there is a problem. And, you know, as Lori was talking about geotechnical engineers, they hardly, you know, are involved all the way to the start of the construction or the end of the construction, right? Geotechnical report goes out and it, number of things can happen if you think about it. And sometimes they get a call, sometimes they don't get a call. And it is all on general contractor or the subcontractor to build it safely and make sure that it happens successfully and optimize project, right? Optimize the project. So um, I'm really happy that they also talked about like, you know, what is important to be in geotechnical report. And Lori spoke about what is in the geotechnical report and how that should be seen by a contractor. And of course, Peter agrees to some of it and does not agree to some of it. That's, <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I really no, like that. I mean, you, you mentioned a thing, and, and it's certainly not a rabbit hole we're going down today on this episode, but you do raise the interesting point of there's a lot of times where the owner wants to get slick and try and save a few bucks, and the geotech yeah. that does support is not necessarily the testing agency or engineer that's in the field for construction. So, that I mean, that's a whole other bag yeah. of worms that we're not going down today, but it, that that's a could be a real issue when it comes to this. Yeah, and, and also like, you know, you ended it uh, uh, the second round at the right time where you said, you know, who pays for this? You know, <laughs> who is going to pay for this? Is general contractor going to take the brunt of it or is the owner supposed to pay for it? Or are we going to figure out something before, uh, you know, it's too late, before it's too late. And I like, uh, you know, both of them are very highly valuable and assets in the industry. and. They have been working with technical associations a long time, right? As they were talking about the mm -hmm. avenues, how this can go out, I can see something come out of all these conversations that we are having for so many, last so many years, like um, yep. a task force coming out of it and every technical association having one person dedicated to working. I hope this happens. I don't know if this is going to happen. You know, I'm sure Laurie and Peter will say the, the same thing. You know, DFI, ADSC, GI, they all have one person who will be on part of this uh, task force and they will work together mm -hmm. to see how this can be um, gotten out and explained to owners, contractors, and geotechs and how changes can be made with respect to uh, working platform seem more importantly. Very well done, I think, the first two rounds. 
All right, welcome back. We are here for our third and final round. So, you know, we've we've talked about the issues with working platform design and construction. We've we've spent some time talking about some of the ways to improve the situation, right? So in this third round, we're gonna close out with some final thoughts on, you know, where, where do we go from here, right? So Peter, let's let's start this one with you. You know, what would you say? What's the most significant change that can be made right now to improve the understanding of the roles and responsibilities of working design, working platform design and construction? I truly believe after all what I heard and what others have been doing successfully, I truly believe that the industry needs to agree on, on implementing what we call a platform certificate. And uh, this certificate lays out uh, guidelines on who's responsible for what, who does what, it goes as far as saying, okay, somebody needs to make sure that the platform is not only designed, but also placed properly and maintained properly yeah, throughout uh, the four seasons or throughout its use yeah, and, and should have clear responsibilities and uh, should be an established document in, in every contract. Yeah? And, uh, since this is a safety issue, OSHA seems to be the right uh, entity to, to anchor such a certificate. But as Laurie mentioned, it's kind of hard to, to change OSHA regulations that might take too much time. And we all understand that, that this is not nothing which can be anchored in a building code. So how does it get uh, to the responsible parties is the big question. And we had some initial discussions uh, in the industry-wide working group and, and one idea was we need to get in front of the insurances. We need to make them understand uh, they are reducing risk. They're making it a safer working place when they would maybe offer incentives for owners to implement uh, such a certificate to more or less tell their GCs, their builders, everybody else, hey, this is a format we'd like you to follow to make sure that you work safe. And if the insurance companies offer a little incentive to the owner, I think the owner is driven by, by monetary means, um, this will trickle down fast. And we don't need to wait for 10 year revision of the OSHA standard or find any other avenue. Yeah? How do we get to insurance is a different topic. Yeah, I'm not a lawyer, I'm an engineer, but this was one idea and I think that that was a very catchy idea. No, that's that's actually a great idea because you know pe people, no one really likes paying for insurance. Let's just let's just call that what it is, right? But if if there's a way to save money on it, yeah. then you know I think that would definitely get someone's attention. So, Lori, from from your perspective, right? I mean, you've been pretty clear in in terms of your stance with where the responsibility from the the geotech lies. But how do you think in this instance, right? Peter brings up a good idea with insurance. Well, you know, owners a lot of times they're not necessarily familiar with the intricacies of foundation design construction. They just hire a GC to go build what they want to invest in, right? So what, what do you think 
do you think the geotech could help in that role? Is there something different? But I mean, could they help maybe in an education capacity with the owner? Or is there any other steps in the immediate future that, that you feel consultants could could take to, to be more helpful uh, moving forward with this? Okay, so I'm going to take a little different tack to start. Um, we need to change the terminology. I have had such a big issue with the terminology here. And I think that it can lead to confusion and a misunderstanding of what we're talking about. I mean, what is a working platform? When you say the word platform, I think you envision structurally a structurally built, constructed element, a platform. Uh, so when you call it a working platform, I think that people immediately envision something you have to build with lumber or steel or concrete, and that it's a much bigger element than it actually is. Uh, I think that the terminology is misplaced and should be changed entirely. Um, so that's number one. I think the, the, the terminology needs to change to get I people agree. to actually envision what we're really talking about. What'd you say, Peter? Yuli disagree. <laughs> I think <laughs> a platform covers all of this above and can cover <laughs> ground, natural ground, can cover man-made ground, can cover any build-up, anything with <laughs> fabric in between, a steel, a concrete, or even a wooden structure. Yes. So I think that's yeah. a European point of view. And when I brought up this issue, when I first heard the terms uh, working platform, I was told, well, that's the term they use in Europe and we're bringing it here. And maybe it's a way of describing it in Europe that people understand. But I'm just going to say here in the States, you say the word platform, you think of a structural element. You think of something that is constructed, not just of the earth or earth materials. So I think that is problematic. So that's number one. Um, number two, when you're talking about what can the geotechnical engineer do um, to bring this to the forefront? Um, unfortunately, I think that not everybody reads our reports. Um, I think that there's a lot of information in there. And um, unfortunately, I, I think people open up the report, go straight to the recommendations, find the numbers they need, throw them into their design, and they don't read all the words that are there to really talk about the issues and the things to be aware of and the things to, you know, um, get ready for. So uh, I am, I think that, you know, maybe geotechnical engineers could really uh, point to this maybe more directly with less words and maybe try to um, you know, highlight it in some way so it doesn't get lost in the report. Um, our reports typically have a construction conditions or a construction issues section. And it's just you know, things that we're trying to point to that might be things to consider during construction. And this would be one of them. Um, but maybe because it's not an actual recommendation, people skip all that discussion and all the, the you know, the talking about it that we do in our reports. Um, you know, when we're talking in meetings, we can certainly bring it up more. Um, I would say, you know, it is a topic of discussion on many of my projects. And I think really then where the conflict comes from is, well, whose responsibility is it? To take care of this and that's where you know it's like okay you geotech you do it and it's like well no that's not really our responsibility okay you specialty sub you do it it's like well right. no you guys need to provide us a site that's ready to take our equipment so i mean i think it's good when it does come up and so you can go around the table and talk about ultimately who's going to do it 
Um, but yeah, I think it's important to bring it up early and often make sure it gets addressed in some appropriate way. Yeah, that, that's it. I think we can we can all agree here that you know the the time to bring it up is not when the equipment being mobilized to the site is on trucks and on the way to the site, right? Let, it's, let, it's let's, be... let's rumble a little early. Yes, early is in the report. Early is my wish. Have a section of recommendation for working platforms. Sorry, I have to bottle this back. Working platform. That terminology is branded already. It's out I hate it. going to be used and, and people have acknowledged and people are hopping on board. And yes, I'm a European. I'm sorry but <laughs> if it came from there. But I think in the meantime, people have understood uh, what we're talking about globally. What do they associate with this? Mm, might not be the right thing. You're right. We still have to do a lot on the awareness side. Yes, absolutely. I, I fully yeah, agree. Yeah. And, and Peter, please, you know, this is a safe space for Europeans here. Don't don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I do I do agree with you, right? And and Lori, maybe not necessarily to the extent that you're talking about with steel or platform or something, but taking it to the other side, like with dynamic compaction that I do, I need a platform for my cranes. That necessarily doesn't involve building anything. That just needs to make sure that the ground is stable. So you've got everything from existing ground being stable all the way up through a designed and constructed maybe it's peter gave some examples stone with geogrid with stone you know so there is something definitely there to the notion that you are having to construct something whether it's steel whether it's timber whether it's just earth but that's not always the case right that you're 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 looking to necessarily build something it could just be that what you want that's there to be stable right so Let's. I, I got one final question for for, and it, it'll be the same question to both of you guys here. So, you know, we're at this point. We're having this conversation. And it's the topic of this podcast because working platforms can definitely represent a weak link in the foundation industry. Uh, I, I think it's you know why we're here. Uh, we hear about failures every year. Sometimes the failures are catastrophic. Sometimes they're not. But when you compare it to a bearing capacity failure of a foundation, right? That, which is something that never happens, right? I mean, the foundation design and construction itself is generally limited by settlement. So you're not even getting to the point of a bearing capacity failure. And again, we're gonna, we're gonna paint with a broad brush here, all of us, whether it's the consultants, the contract, we all know how to study ground. We know how to quantify shear strength. We know how to improve the ground when we need to for various reasons. So in as few words as possible here, let's let's wrap this up with, you know, why are working platforms such a weak link? And what do we need to do to just make them as safe as possible? Final thoughts. Laura, you lead off. Well, I think they're a weak link because people don't think about them. So, you know, bringing this topic to the forefront is, is important and that will change people's understanding and planning for it. Um, what to make them, I mean, you said as safe as possible. Well, I think as safe as possible within, you know, a reasonable economic consideration. Fair enough, maybe as safe as required. So maybe yeah. poor, poor close of words, right. I mean, I don't think it's hard to do. Um, 
And it's really just a matter, and I don't think people disagree. I mean, Peter gave an example of widely varying, um, you know, predictions of what a certain condition could support. So we all know there's not one single correct answer in geotechnical engineering, and there's some, right. some variety. But um, I think that it's it's a relatively straightforward question, and really the question comes to is who's going to design it, who's going to build it, who's going to be responsible for it. I, and, and I think you hit the nail on the head earlier, a key word, and I, I saw Peter actually agree with you on this one, early, right? It seems like that's a very good word here, talking about this early and often and not just, not just at the last minute. Peter, close us out. What are your, what are your final thoughts here? Uh, I, I agree fully. Awareness is still not there. Um, that makes it such a weak link. People do not understand. Uh, we're trying to improve this, and this goes all the way back to to equipment suppliers uh, who looked at me when I said, "Look, you'll, the loads you're giving me uh, don't match what you gave me last year, or don't match this," and 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 were absolutely stunned. Yeah, and uh, when we looked into designing uh, approach, design approaches, yeah, there is there is a huge spread, and and we need to close that gap. And we need to make this as easy as possible uh, for even the smallest subcontractor to understand and be aware. All right, the end of round three. Lucky, Lucky, what'd you think? It was great. I really have to applaud both of them. Uh, both of them had different perspectives on uh, working platforms. And of course, I think I, uh, I agree with Lori. Platforms is a very wrong term to you. Sorry, Peter, I have to go with Lori. <laughs> Not because she's my BFF, but Second she is. Second time now. <laughs> Second time now, yes. <laughs> no, I, I think we should have a better word for it. I When you say platforms, even in India, I think you think about, you know, a stage you are building. You know, it is not of earth materials, but it is more of steel or concrete or any other wood or anything else. So I don't know, maybe we should call it stable ground. I don't know. I'm just saying that, you know, um, and I like how they both, uh, you know, when you ask them what is future of working platforms, I think they both came up to the same conclusion of how the industry has to move forward and which direction it has to move forward. I'm really happy to hear that. Um, so I can see a lot coming out of this. We have brought the conversation to the forefront and uh, all the work that Peter has been doing through DFI and Lori has been doing through DFI, you know, and uh, bridging to GI and other technical associations will, will definitely have some fruit in the future soon. Thank you both. No, that, this was amazing. No, that's great. Peter, uh, Lori, you know, Lori, I've known you for a long time. Peter, you know, I've, I've met you a few times recently and just, just getting to start working with you a little bit, but you guys have been great sports. Uh, we, and I can speak on behalf of, of our, our Rumble podcast group, Tim Siegel, who's not with, you know, uh, Sebastian. We, we very much appreciate you guys joining us for this today. Um, these kind of conversations are very helpful to the industry as a whole. And so, you know, again, thank you guys for joining us. And uh, is there any, any final thoughts for, from either one of you as we wrap up here? Well, it's just great to get to talk to this. I mean, you can see ultimately Peter and I don't really disagree on the importance of this and, and really how to right. get there. Uh, 
and maybe give us a glass of wine next time and we'll find something else to fight about. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Maybe we need to st stop recording these over Zoom and, and, and record them in a bar somewhere and we'll get we, somewhere, right? We know each other since, what is that, 15 years, 16 years yeah. now? <laughs> yeah. I still remember the first day, <laughs> quite frankly. So, and, and, and yep. I don't think we're ever going to get in a, in a fight being <laughs> with or without a glass of wine. If we're that's talking, a, that's a great it. idea. I think take the cameras where the action is. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. That's it. So, well, excellent. Well, guys, this is this has been fantastic. It's been informative. I, I think the viewers are really going to enjoy this. So thank you guys for joining us. And, and that'll wrap us up. And you know, we'll look forward to seeing everyone on the next episode of Rumble. Listeners, don't forget uh, to tell us if uh, contractor one or consultant <laughs> one or industry one. But I also want you to leave your comment on what you see as the future for working platforms. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank All right. On behalf of DFI, we hope you enjoyed this episode. The views, information, and opinions expressed during Deep Foundation Institute's podcasts are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of DFI. DFI does not verify or take responsibility for the accuracy of the information contained, nor does it warrant that the information contained herein is suitable for any general or specific use. The podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Editing, modification or redistribution of this podcast is prohibited. Sponsored by ECA. Thanks for your time. Keep on surviving.